Welcome to Stay Grounded with your host, me, Raj Jana. I'm the founder of Java Press Coffee Company, and my life changed after my mentor died with three months left until retirement. That experience inspired me to start a personal journey to discover how we can all live a purpose-driven and meaningful life starting today. I interview everyone from best-selling authors and business moguls to extreme athletes and monks to discuss happiness, success, and fulfillment to uncover powerful takeaways that empower you to stay grounded and make passionate living a reality. To access post-podcast discussions, insights, and further resources, visit rajjana.com forward slash stay grounded. So thanks for joining me today. Now, let's get to grinding. What is up, everybody? Welcome to episode 30 of the Stay Grounded podcast. I'm your host, Raj. Super excited today to be introducing this week's guest, Mr. John Berghoff. John is probably one of the most fascinating people I've had the pleasure of interviewing uh, he leads some of the largest, most complex group of collaborations in the world uh, and helps them create a process where they design their collective future together. Uh, he's the president of the Flourishing Leadership Institute, uh, where he's on a mission to train and certify others uh, to bring out the best in human systems. Now, human systems are an incredibly fascinating topic. Uh, so essentially what John does is he works with organizations to help them collaborate and create cultures for growth uh, that go beyond what they were doing already. And so he's got an incredible fascination with the human mind, the psychological mind, uh, what makes people tick, different types of systems that make groups of people come together to create and accomplish incredible feats. Uh, And so I'm always fascinated by individuals who are able to motivate others Uh, to go above and beyond uh, using the intrinsic value of the human spirit. And so it was was an incredible conversation with John. He shared so much insight uh, about what makes human beings uh, incredible, where he brings in his inspiration from, whether it's from nature uh, or his his three kids, uh, and how everything that he does in his life sort of feeds into this idea of just mastering the human spirit. And he's worked with so many different types of organizations and brought so much success to so many different people. I'm grateful that he was here to have this conversation with me. So hope you guys enjoy this episode. But before we get started, if you haven't already, please, please, please subscribe, rate, review uh, the Stay Grounded podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you choose to listen to us. Your support means the world and your feedback is even more. So feel free to also reach out to me personally. My email is chiefbrewer at javapress.com, javapress, S N E at the end. And uh, just let me know. Let me know what's working, what isn't working. I want to hear from you guys. Uh, this is This podcast is for you. So anyways, without further ado, it is my pleasure to introduce Mr. John Berghoff. Happy listening. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Stay Grounded podcast. I'm your host, Raj, and I have a relatively new friend of mine uh, on the show today, Mr. John Berghoff. John, how are you, friend? Raj, what's up, man? I'm great. Glad to be here. I just finished a yoga class, actually, like 10 minutes ago, so So I'm very open and flexible. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny. I started doing hot yoga a little while ago. and it was a huge game changer for me, actually. Um, now it's a part of my everyday morning 
routine. Uh, oh, it's great. Hot, hot yoga. And then I lead into other stuff later in the day. But anyways, um, the audience is not here to hear more about what I do first thing in the morning. Um, so John, I, I wanted to ask you, man, um, you are somebody who, uh, I admire a lot. I mean, you've done a lot, uh, over the past several years, whether it be from consulting, leading organizations, building your own companies. Um, what was it like for you as a, as just growing up, were you always addicted to, um, just being great? And was there like a turning point or a career role that you played that helped you develop yourself, uh, the best, um, I was kind of stalking your LinkedIn for a while. And I saw yeah. a ton of amazing roles, one at Cutco, uh, Vitamix. I mean, you had a lot of these interesting roles. So how did those roles really play uh, a difference in, in who you are today? Yeah, yeah. Well, let me think, where's a good place to start? So nine months before I was born, my mom and dad were on a date. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, that's, gosh, now I can't even get that out of my head. Um, <laughs> You know, I actually, I do think about my parents right away though, because, uh, I think, and this is not something I talk about all the time. Like this isn't some, I, I'm not, I don't do therapy on myself or others. So this isn't some expertise that I have, but I do believe that all of us are shaped in very unconscious ways by our upbringing. And so when you asked that question, it immediately takes me back to as a kid, you know, what did I see and experience and feel a lot of? And you know, a couple of things jump out. One is I, I grew up in Cupertino, California. Oh, okay. hold on. I have to tell Laura, Laura, I'm only so focused. So when our printer machine over there is spitting out all that paper, I can't hear my own thoughts. We have this printer that is so loud and I'm such an auditory person that as yeah. soon as it starts printing, I actually can't hear myself thinking. Oh my gosh. I, yeah, I should, I should tell our off. team <laughs> while I'm on the episode, not before, during, or after. Because in life, like I would I would try and tell myself, okay, I'm gonna tell her later on, but then I'd forget to. I would just hold it inside and I'd have some yeah. I, I wouldn't understand why I'd be so upset at Laura. All right, sorry about that. So no worries. um when I think about my upbringing with my parents, my I grew up in the Bay Area of California. Cupertino was my hometown. Most people know of Cupertino as the headquarters of Apple. And you know, I, I remember certain things as a kid. One of them was that that the the ethos, the spirit of the Bay Area, as it is today, was 30 years ago. Um, it was a very pioneering spirit, right? There was a, an entrepreneurial, a collective entrepreneurial spirit. And my mom and dad were a part of that. Um, they worked really hard. At, they both had full-time jobs in the tech space. And my relationship with both my parents was a little bit different. Like my dad, um, he he was there for everything. Like all my sporting events, he was always there. Yeah. And today I got three kids. I got an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old. And one of the things I've noticed is that like the, the values that I hold the deepest are things that I, I haven't even had conscious like conversations with myself about. They're just how I was treated when I was a kid, when I start to actually connect the dots. And so, you know, I learned a lot. One of the things my dad taught me was how important it is to learn something from everything. And, um, I can even remember a time when I got in trouble for something in high school and it was one of these things, it was like a big deal. And I get, and you know, it's like my dad sits me down and he pulls out this little piece of paper and, and it was, it was a situation where it was like a super big deal to me, our family. Yeah. And he looks at me and he says, he says, John, what I wrote down here is that here's what I value as a dad. And he said, 
He said, when I look at what just happened, I feel like somehow I have failed as a dad. Mm, And he said, and I'll never forget him saying to me, so A, the way that he was taking ownership. Now, maybe it was some sort of reverse psychology thing, but um, the way he was taking ownership over my outcomes as a kid, I'll never forget that. Um, But the other thing too, is he finished that conversation by saying, he's saying, hey, I'm going to let you just be by yourself. I'm going to go think, what can I learn from this situation? Wow. And I always remember, and as a kid, you don't appreciate that. It just pisses me off, right? To hear him <laughs> say, well, what are you going to learn from this? Um, but that was something he instilled in me that that was almost like unlocking a part of my own genes or DNA that later on, I was really lucky that was a part of my DNA. And then my mom, one of the things I learned from my mom is the, and she and I didn't have a great relationship, um, which is a whole other thing. But what I learned from her is she, she was an entrepreneur and I saw her willing to take risks. And it taught me as a kid that, you know, maybe in life, like the real risk is not taking risk. And so I feel lucky that I had these parents. We didn't have a perfect relationship. In a lot of ways, there was a lot of pain yeah. um, for, for different, all sorts of different reasons, you know, that probably started with how they were treated by their parents. Um, but what I've learned to do 30 years later is try and try and choose where I'm going to put the frame, what lens I'm going to put on when I reflect back and say, what gifts do I want to try and make more and more a part of what I uh, reconnect with when I think about my parents. So that's like before any of the business stuff. And then I'll give you one quick story about a time where my life was completely turned around, fortunately for the better. I was a senior in high school, actually it was between my junior and senior year. And it was just a a cause of a series of events that are sometimes unexplainable. Um, Even looking back where I was really struggling in high school for, you know, for everybody, each stage of their life, they have their own unique experience and meaning that they give to that. I had a really tough time in high school. Uh, Part of it, the simplest explanation, we moved a lot as a family for like, there were three years in a row where I had to be in three different schools. And at that age for me, whatever, it was difficult. And, um, there was a point at which I was at a very, very low point socially. I was at the lowest of low points. Uh, I was really struggling in school, which, you know, all the tests said I was smart. So why am I struggling? <laughs> and, um, and, and even physically, I actually have a couple of photographs when I was 16, 17, I was like 20 pounds heavier then than I am now. It was wow. like every aspect yeah. of me was not, not healthy. And I, and it's so fortunate how life works out. Sometimes you connect the dots, sometimes only looking back. And, um, I had gotten invited to, as you said earlier, go sell Cutco knives and, um, not everybody that sells Cutco is going to have this unique experience, although it is, um, pretty cool how they as a company create this repeatedly for so many people that we now know. And, um, they had a culture of developing people. And I was so lucky that my first mentor um, kind of opened my eyes and he opened my eyes to realize that, hey, you're, I'll never forget him saying, and this was because remember when I found this, I was at a low point. He said, you know, life doesn't get easier. Your skills only get better. Mm. I thought, huh, let me sit with that for a little bit. And then a few days later, he looked at me and said, because he could tell I was a 17 year old young man whose motivations were quite superficial. And it, you know, I was like, how do I just make a lot of money and, um, and get people to like me, right? And I'll never forget him then saying to me, your income will seldom exceed your level of personal development. I love that quote. And I thought, yeah, I thought, what if he's right? Like if he's right, 
then I should just become insatiably curious and I should want to learn everything I possibly can about this thing called sales. And then the rest was kind of history. I was lucky that I had great mentors and a good work ethic that I'd learned from my parents. I didn't get accepted in any college that I applied to. Um, so I took this entrepreneurial path and I was fortunate that led to a series of really positive outcomes. And I guess I'll, I'll finish the story with this moment today. Um, you know, a month ago, I was flown in to meet at Facebook and lead a really intense internal high stakes collaboration for them. And two weeks before that, I was brought to Munich to lead the self-driving division for BMW through a really high stakes collaboration. So today I get called in by these huge uh, um, mega enterprises to solve big problems. And you know, the irony is I look back and I actually struggled as a member of a group of people in a big way. And I look at the work I'm doing and I really believe that for many of us, we end up choosing work that unknowingly we're trying to heal something from our past. We're trying to become whole. So it's fun for me to think about where I've been and what I've struggled with and what we're doing today. And, um, you know, if we can help others to get some sort of positive experience the way I have, that gets me fired up. I love that you, what you just said about the work you're doing now and how it's turned into a form of healing yourself. And it ties really well with that Jim Rohn quote, uh, which is, which is amazing. And actually, there's something I noticed, you know, your, your dad was a big learner and that was the lesson he instilled Mm -hmm. in you. And then your first mentor instilled almost like a level up version of that. And so I think each step of the way, you've just had such a positive influence with an obsession with learning. How does that obsession show up for you today? Um, how are you learning? What are the best ways that you learn and how important it is for you or is it for you to introduce different types of learning into your day-to-day diet? Yeah, you know, it's kind of the one thing that's always been my own kind of secret weapon in life. Like even times where I couldn't understand something or I didn't have all the advantages. I've always felt like if I can outlearn everybody else, Um, and this, you know, that kind of thinking is a very competitive nature, but when I began in sales, that was like the whole arena, it was a competitive arena. And today it's, it's just a matter of, Hey, the, the, the more, uh, the more intentionally I can continue to be with my curiosity, um, the more that curiosity will lead me to discoveries that's going to just maximize my ability to make the biggest possible impact that I can. So your question, I love the question, how does it show up? I think it shows up a few different ways. You know, part of it is just a spirit. Like I could sit here and say, here's what I, I have something called an intentional learning plan. And I literally read every day and I read, I don't listen to audio, even though I'm an auditory person and I love music and there's, I could get into why that is. Um, and I get into how I read and, um, and why my retention is really high. Um, but before getting into that, I'll start by saying none of that shit, sorry, I don't know no, that shit, none <laughs> of that shit matters. Um, if you don't have a value system or a, an internal ethos of deep, legitimate, insatiable curiosity. Um, and so I've come to realize um, that I have that. And I don't, I, I don't know that I understand where that came from. Like, yeah, I've, I've had mentors and environmental stimuluses that <clears throat> invited me to be curious, but I, I don't know. I don't know if that's something we're born with. Um, I just, I feel fortunate that I have it. And so it starts with, uh, having this pervasive 
never-ending curiosity about everything. Um, and I believe that's it, to have that or nurture that or develop it. It's, it's both a blessing and a curse. Mm. Um, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a strength and a shadow at the same time. Um, because for me, I wake up and I go to bed asking myself questions. How does this work? I, you know, where are we going to go with this? Why am I doing what I'm doing? You know, wh- whatever question I can ask that draws me to the place that most serves that moment or that day or that situation. Um, the downside is, you know, that's a lot going on all the time. So I have to build in practices to also unplug or disconnect. Um, because I find if I don't build in practices to unplug or disconnect the brain, then, um, uh, I, I just becomes inefficient at some point. Um, so there's gotta be a pervasive, like I'm always curious. I always want to learn something from everything. One of the, uh, one of the sources that I study a lot from, there's a group of scientists at MIT because my area of expertise or interest is in human systems. How do you unlock an entire organization or even a community, a system, a city, a region, a country, even an entire civilization. So that's what we study and that's what we get brought in to do. And a lot of the scientists that we learned from, you know, they teach an approach to, you used the word mindfulness earlier in our conversation, to systemic mindfulness. Hmm. How, do you, how do you generate mindfulness at the scale of you know, 30,000 people or a 500-person uh, enterprise? And one of the things that we constantly think about is how do, we, how do we invite ourselves and others to, number one, open our minds, to constantly be willing to question our own beliefs, to explore our assumptions or question them, to challenge our thinking, to even challenge our values or whether or not we're actually living up to what we claim we value. But the simple thing is, can I be open to to allowing myself to see things maybe a little bit differently than I saw things yesterday, to not always see the world through the same two eyes. Can I get outside of my own head and start to see things differently? And then number two, can I start to actually see the world, what we call after we open our minds, can we open our hearts? Can I actually see the world through the eyes of others? Um, Because whether it's my relationship with my wife or my three kids or my customers or my partners, um, every one of those relationships gets to a new level, the more authentically I can see the world through their eyes. And I then finally, if I, if, if I can open up my thinking to be willing to see things differently and then my heart to actually see through the eyes of others, I get really, really present. And that's the end goal is to be so present. And this sounds like a bunch of like wacko jacko stuff and <laughs> I'm happy to explain this a little further. <laughs> But um, this actually comes from theory you developed by Otto Scharmer out of MIT. And one of the things that they do, and they don't, they don't just come up with this stuff in a laboratory. They look at the evolution of entire civilizations. They look at organizations that have somehow learned how to be adaptable in the face of the craziest challenges. And what they find is that the ones that can thrive find ways, and that's our business, we bring in certain ways to do it, there's many, to open up people's minds, to open their hearts, so that ultimately we actually become so present that we, be, we can become participants in what we call the future that is seeking to emerge. And that sounds like cool, like, wow, hey, how do I do that? How do I become a participant in the future that's seeking to emerge? Well, we gotta let go of old ways of thinking We've got to let go of habitually seeing the world one way um, and to a point where we're actually seeing it as though we are the entire universe seeing itself. 
And, and again, that sounds like some crazy stuff here, but um, there's actually practical ways to do this stuff. Um, so you asked me all about being curious and learning and what does it look like for you? And these are some of the crazy thoughts that I have all the time. But let, let me finish with something a little bit more, less otherworldly and more mundane, but practical, which is I am very um, careful about how I choose to learn. In other words, mm. I rarely, rarely, rarely will read a book because somebody says you should read a book. Um, if I'm reading a book, it's because I have dissected what are the exact capabilities or capacities that our business needs to develop? What are the frameworks, competencies, um, ways of thinking, being, or doing that have some sort of direct complement to myself or to our company? And then how do I intentionally go seek out the, the knowledge and wisdom that's out there that is it related to these areas that I need to learn from? So I'm doing that intentionally and rarely will I chase uh, a rabbit trail just because somebody says, here's a good book. And, and one of the consequences of that is, you know, I read a lot of books that a lot of times when people ask me to refer a book, um, I'll first I have to ask in what category yep. I need to know about them. But most of the time I'm referring a book that A, they've never heard of because there's a lot of incredible wisdom that's been published you know, prior to the bestseller list from last week. And B, people are usually blown away by some of these books. They're amazed that this kind of wisdom was out there 10 or 20 or 50 or 120 years ago. Um, but that's, uh, that, that makes it all enjoyable for me is intentionally following where these things take me. So I'll stop there and see if that stirs up any other thoughts. I mean, I have at least a million. Um, I think you and I have probably the same issue uh, with our minds always being on. But you brought up something incredibly interesting to me, uh, which is almost like a contradiction. Uh, you said that your mind's always running, but you find it almost hard to disconnect. But then kind of the way you're, you're, you're teaching your practices is about looking through the heart and being present. So how does mm -hmm. presence almost bake itself um, into your life? Um, and in what capacity do you have tools that you use to personally be more present, whether it be with your family or whether it be with a client or whether it be just anywhere you are, how does that sort of manifest for yourself? Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the work that I do where I will step onto a stage and I'll have 600 citizens from the city of Cleveland staring at me and I have to orchestrate 600 people over six hours, self-organizing into 10 to 20 to 30 design teams and designing sustainability initiatives that they're going to present to each other by the end of the day. Or last week, it was stepping in front of a TEDx audience in Traverse City with, with uh, 500 or more eyeballs staring at me. Yeah. And I'm there to facilitate this brand new innovation, this invention on how we're iterating the way TEDx uh, events are run. That kind of work demands maximum presence. Um, the, the ability to hold and work with that many people. And it, another way of putting it is um, I choose for that work to demand my presence. And I think everybody should stop and think, is there any reason why I can't choose that my work demands ultimate presence from myself? Because my personal experience is that the more present I can be, and it doesn't matter if there's 600 faces or one looking at me, the more present I can be, 
the more connected I can be to the highest possible potential that could emerge from that given situation, that given moment or that given conversation or relationship or whatever it is. So for me, it's just a choice. It's something I value that is like a necessity. Not everybody values it in the same way. I've also learned from working in you know every continent imaginable that um, presence is not something, it's not a universally... Um, it's not a universal in how present people are. Like I can tell you countries that I've gone to where I work with audiences where within a few minutes, I'm like, oh my gosh, we Americans are terrible people. <laughs> we, yeah. we can't focus if our life depended on it. You know, you go to Japan or Germany or any of these cultures where uh, part of their deeply rooted values around being in a learning environment affect how they show up. And, and it's mind blowing how present people are. I mean, I could tell you stories of, you know, multiple days on end, hundreds of people working in all different types of organizations where not a single person's eyes lose focus from whoever it is that's speaking in the room at any given moment for days on end. Wow. That, like for, for most people that you and I might work with in the States, that's like a fantasy or even a joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I could tell you organizations and places I've been where anything other than that would be a, a, a they, wouldn't even, they wouldn't be able to comprehend it. Yeah. So presence and seeing how it actually shows up around the world has been quite interesting. But for me, it's a, it's a priority and how I actually do it. And we teach this too. We certify folks in our approach to facilitating. And one of our principles for facilitating uh, uh, living systems is we call it the O'Brien principle. And the O'Brien principle is named after um, a gentleman who today is a chair for the Organizational Learning Society at MIT. He was the CEO of Hanover Insurance for 30 years. And Bill O'Brien, he would say that the quality of an intervention is always a reflection of the interior conditions of the intervener. In other words, translated, if you coach others, lead others, influence others, present to others, the quality of that experience is always a reflection of the interior qualities of whoever it is that's trying to do the leading, the coaching, the teaching, the selling, whatever it is, which is just kind of a fancy, you know, new or old way of saying that what's going on inside of us uh, has a direct, undeniable, inseparable impact on what's happening outside of us. So we teach that principle to our facilitators because as a facilitator, we have to see how it is that our energy is affecting the energy of hundreds, if not more people in real time. And there's a lot at stake there. Um, for me, the, the method that I use, I, I have a practice that I was taught by Juliana Ray, who is the uh, kind of the exclusive teacher of the unified mindfulness practice. It was developed by Shinzen Young. Yeah. yeah. So unified mindfulness was developed by Shinzen about 40 or 50 years ago. And there's a lot of reasons why I prefer that practice. And I'll tell you two of them. One of them is because it is a practice that actually uh, it, it serves as a vocabulary to explain all forms of meditation and mindfulness, hence unified mindfulness. So no matter what version of meditation somebody wants to explore, if they go study the unified uh, approach, they realize the unified approach will just make any other practice they have far more rich. That's been what everyone I've ever introduced it to has said. Um, the second thing I enjoy about the unified approach is unlike many approaches to mindfulness or meditation, what unified mindfulness teaches is that mindfulness can actually be a living practice. 
In other words, um, I can be practicing it right now as I communicate with you if I choose to do so. And what I like about that is if I forget or I don't have the habit of a sitting practice where I am just dedicating five or 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day or whatever it is, I can actually bring the unified approach into any moment by moment experience that I'm having. That's very efficient. Yes. I can, I can at any point in time be working out my attention skills because ultimately that's one of the primary benefits of a mindfulness practice. Same way we go to a gym to condition our muscles. Any form of mindfulness or meditation is like flexing the, the attention skills that we can build. Um, and we can talk all about that, but those are, for me, that's like at the deep, deep, deep common denominator to anything I want to get done. It all starts with my attention skills, really. How do your attention skills uh, translate between business and family? Um, like, cause I, I, what I noticed is that a lot of people, including myself, you know, when I'm around someone or something I want to be around presence is at a maximum max, but yep. when I'm in something or a part of my business or a part of my life that I either have to do, or it's almost like a forced thing that needs to get done, the presence starts to wane. Um, how do you sort of differentiate or bring in that passion, that passionate mindfulness that you have when you're in a situation or a place that you really want to be in into places that you aren't? Yeah. Well, so you bring up a really good distinction and I'm guessing a lot of your listeners can relate to this in many different ways. You know, the distinction that you're bringing up is in certain situations, uh, it might be easier for some of us to be really present than others. My guess is that what a lot of your audience agrees to, I think most people agree to is that, you know, the ability to be present is it's that, that, the importance transcends everything. You know, it doesn't matter if I'm with my kids or at work, it's an important ability to develop. So what I found is that, um, let me give you a couple examples. So my wife and I have three kids, they're eight, six, and four. And, um, they're very important to me in many ways. They're like the, my family is the most important thing in my world. It doesn't mean I always treat them that way. They'll tell you that. Um, <laughs> And so, so what's going on there? Like, let's deconstruct that. What's going on there is actually the same reason an entire company has a shitty culture that fails. Yeah. What's going on there is the same reason why we wake up and we have inner turmoil as human beings. What's going on there is we say that we value something, but for whatever reason, the way we're showing up is not in perfect alignment with what we say we value. And that gap, see, the, 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 my day job is, you know, helping a whole system of people to figure out how to be at their best. Well, one of the detrimental ways that systems get brought down is when they say they value something, but everybody goes to work realizing we don't actually behave that way. Those are just things on our website or words on a poster on the wall. And so now you have what's called a collective inauthenticity. That's like the ultimate corruption of a culture is when we say we value something, we're not living it. Well, same thing is true as individuals. So one of the things that I try and do is bring my mindfulness practice with me everywhere I go. Because I know that, I mentioned earlier, there's attention skills that mindfulness mm -hmm. helps to build. Let me break some of those down. I know that when I am improving these attention skills in any possible setting, I can behave more closely to the way that I really value or want to be behaving. And so I'll come back to these attention skills. There's three that unified mindfulness really calls attention to. 
one of the first one is like the most obvious, the one that most people, people literally take pills and supplements to get this one. And it's called concentration power. Mm. Like concentration power, the, the simple definition is, am I able to stay focused on whatever I deem to be the most important thing to focus on at any given moment, right? So when I sit down at the dinner table with my family, concentration power either kicks in or it doesn't when I'm either focused on my family or I'm not, right? Like sometimes yeah. it can be that easy to explain. We're just distracted, right? Because even though driving home and consciously I can tell you and everybody that the most important thing for me to concentrate on is my family, I still have these, you know, I had this challenge at work. I got this big deal that I'm trying to close yeah. and so much hinges on it. My family doesn't understand that. So I'm sure they would be okay if they realized that I just need to keep thinking about this because there's so much emotion tied to it, right? Which leads yeah. to the second and third attention skill. Concentration power is one. The second one is what we call uh, sensory clarity, right? This one's a little less obvious, but sensory clarity is this. I sit down at the dinner table. And by the way, this isn't just about the dinner table. This is about that meeting with your team. This is about yeah. I, I'm giving a presentation to 20 people and a lot hinges on this, but I'm sitting at the dinner table and, um, and all of a sudden I realize I'm distracted. Well, by the time I've noticed I'm distracted, most of us can relate to this, it's like too late, right? I've already lost the, the, the connection that may have been possible with my friends or family. Um, and I could still try and turn that around. But oftentimes, when our mind goes where we don't want it to go, by the time we do notice it, I don't know about you, but I've had this where, have you ever had this happen? Where you catch yourself having an internal conversation and you go, <laughs> man, that, that audio tape has been playing for way too long. Yeah, I've been having this conversation for like 15 minutes. That was 15 minutes. I'm never going to get back. And that was an absolutely terrible use of my internal conversation, right? It's like, yeah. okay, what should I talk to myself about? Maybe some people can relate to that. So part of the challenge is if we don't have a regular mindfulness practice or meditation practice or yoga or exercise or time in nature or any practice that allows us to connect to these, these deep places of source, then... Um, what happens is we don't notice that we're distracted or that we're emotional or that we're not coming from the best place until it's just too late, right? And so sensory clarity equals this. Sensory clarity is the ability to detect, the ability to distinguish, and not just detect or distinguish, like, is it a, is it a conversation in my head? Because unified mindfulness teaches us that our sensory experience is always happening through either one or more of our senses, right? Mm -hmm. So at any given moment, if somebody's listening to this right now, it might be that the primary dominant experience they're having is an auditory experience. They might be listening to the qualities of our voices, right? Or they might be bouncing back and forth between the, our voices and their own internal conversation. That's the difference mm -hmm. between uh, hearing outward and hearing inward. For some people, you and I are shooting a video. Maybe they're watching the video. Or if not, maybe they're actually just envisioning us having a conversation. Or maybe they were envisioning themselves sitting down with their family. That's called a visual experience, either external watching the video or internal imagining their lives, right? And then for some people, as they're listening to us talk, they're having what we would call a kinesthetic experience. So they might be feeling a sense of comfort or discomfort, right? That would be an external feeling. They might feel the temperature of the room that they're in, or they might actually feel an emotion, right? Of excitement or anxiety or disappointment as they hear the stories we're telling. For every single one of us, every single moment of our lives, 
our internal experience is represented either through what we see, hear, or feel. And what I've noticed, Raj, is that when I'm sitting at the dinner table and I'm totally disconnected to the point where my kids are calling me out on it, it's usually not just that I'm just having a conversation. It's usually not that I'm just seeing a meeting tomorrow. It's usually not just anxiety that I feel like in my chest. It, when I'm really distracted or I'm really in a disempowered state, it's not one of those. It's, a, it's all three of them intertangled, mm. right? And, and that's when our life really has a grip over us is when every part of our internal experience is, and we have to untangle it. So what a mindfulness practice teaches us to do, especially the unified approach, um, is uh, to constantly be scanning for, and, and to not judge and to not become a part of the story, but just to notice, am I seeing, hearing, or feeling right now? right? Am I seeing, hearing, or feeling? And just by noticing it, we develop not only concentration power, but we develop something called sensory clarity, which is the ability uh, to detect, to distinguish, and even to discriminate between one uh, of those sensory experiences and another, right? And when we get better at this, and we can all get better, as we get better, what happens is that voice in my head, that feeling about my work, even though I'm sitting at the dinner table, where that image I have of what I don't want to have happen tomorrow when I show up for my presentation, if I have a regular mindfulness practice, I can see, hear, or feel those things earlier, which allows them to go away before they get a grip on me, mm, right? Yeah. Um, because our internal experience, it's not like a light switch. It's not like a light switch where it's on or off. A, a, a more accurate expression of what goes on inside of us at any given moment, it's more like a wave that comes and goes. And if we can, if we can catch that wave sooner, then we can ride it instead of not noticing it until we're about to get swallowed up by it. And then that leads to the third, uh, attention skill that any kind of mindfulness practice builds, which is, uh, what we would call equanimity and equanimity is the ability to notice what's going on. My internal conversation, physical, emotional feeling, mm -hmm. or the images in my head as I'm sitting at the dinner table, but without allowing the voices, the images, or the feelings to take control over me. Got it. It's the ability to ride the wave. It's yeah. the ability to notice it without getting caught up in the push or the pull of our internal experience. So you asked, you know, how do you bring these things to the places where it matters? To me, understanding the entire internal experience is really helpful. And then once I understand it and I have a practice, I can, bring, I can bring my attention present in any setting where I think it's important. And last thing I'll say, this is all way easier to talk about on a podcast than it is to actually do. So good, good luck, everybody. <laughs> love it. Love it. Um, that was a pretty heavy answer. Um, and I want to bring it back to, to me, I've always felt like practicing mindfulness is another way of feeling gratitude. Um, how does, how does gratitude fit into this concept? Um, and, 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 and does it fuel it? Is it something that's almost something that like, like a supplement to enhancing this faster? Is it a product of it? How does gratitude fit into this equation? Yeah. So the way I think of gratitude, gratitude is a, <clears throat> is a specific lens that we can choose to put on. And, um, and it's, it's something that can go hand in hand with developing a mindfulness practice. 
Um, and I would, I would always, always argue that a precursor to any intentional internal experience is the ability just to develop these attention skills, right? Because before I can become grateful, I have to just get present to what's going on inside of me, yeah. right? Even That's if it's just point. for a split second so that I can then be conscious enough to say, I would now like to explore the experience of gratitude, right? Got it. So yep. there has to be some sort of moment where I can get present before I consciously move into uh, any sort of intentional experience. That's just my opinion. And I, I know I might sound like I think I know a lot about this stuff. It's, it comes from experience, but I'm not like a certified mindfulness teacher. It's just something that I care about. So that's, that's how I look at that. And I think, uh, let's talk about gratitude specifically. You know, gratitude is a really interesting experience for somebody to nurture or to choose or to value. Um, and I think one of the things that's beautiful about gratitude is, and we've all heard this said that it's impossible to experience gratitude and anger at the same time. And maybe we can switch back and forth. Um, but when, when we ask ourselves, what is it that we appreciate? And you notice what I'm doing without, uh, thinking about it is I'm using a question to nurture the experience of gratitude, right? Um, and you know that the work I do is in designing questions to bring to large groups of people. Right. But questions are, are arguably the fastest way to shift what's going on inside of us um, just because of how we're all wired. So when I ask a question like, well, what is it that I can appreciate in my life right now? And I can go a lot of different directions with how I ask that question and how I answer it. But the beautiful thing is, as soon as I ask that question, it's like right now I'm wearing contact lenses. And if anyone's ever worn glasses or contacts, as soon as you put a lens in front of your eye um, by asking a specific question, it actually changes the future even before the answers arrive, right? Because even before I open my eyes, my futures change because that lens is going to shift how I see everything. Yeah. So asking the question, what is it that I'm grateful for in my life? What is it that I can appreciate? Who is it that I can appreciate? Why do I appreciate these people? Now, there's a strong argument that says you should actually even answer it in writing and out loud with others. Yeah. But just starting with the question um, is it's super healthy for us to develop a, an awareness is to what internal programs am I running? And if I want to change them, what question do I want to ask um, so that I can direct that lens or that attention in the places that I want to? Amazing. I love that. I love, I just love how analytical you are. Um, and I think how dialed in you are with the implementation of tools that we can all develop. And even if it's just asking better questions or being more aware or just having conversations that, I think are practical in any sense, not just the business world, not just personal life, not just, not just when you're in the gym, it's everywhere. So I, mm. I, I admire that about you, John. Um, that, that is, that is pr- pretty amazing. I wanted to kind of come full circle. Um, I had a couple questions left for you, but um, the, this one, in the beginning of the conversation, you said that um, you started off with your parents and a couple of things mm. that your parents said, or your dad said that he learned from you. Um, what do you learn from your own kids? Um, and what do you learn from, from, from people that seemingly don't, may not have the, the expertise yet to give you, but like, just, what do you learn? Yeah, man, that's a, it's such an interesting question. Um, and anyone who's a parent, 
uh, you know, they're, they're either laughing or they're crying <laughs> because, um, they realize that, you know, having, having kids creates a certain awareness that is, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's hard to describe or maybe relate to unless you have, um, but I'll tell you for me, like what I've learned from having kids or what I learned from my kids is that, um, every single thing I do and see the, at first I learned this just by seeing them. And then what it helped me to realize is that it's not even about them. Like this is true everywhere I go. And specifically what I'm talking about is seeing how my kids become me, right? Like, and, and it's, and it's not just that they become like all the good parts of me, but they become every part of me. So I'll see in my son, like my greatest weaknesses, but because I'm seeing them through him, it's kind of like seeing a, a, having a mirror held up, but it's not a mirror. It's a miniature human being. <laughs> and, uh, which just makes it so much, it, there's something interesting about that. So that's been a big thing. Having kids is seeing that uh, no matter you know how hard I try or don't try, that everything I do is becoming a part of them, and um, you know that to me it's just a big lesson that like you could take this conversation right now I think and just remove like the kids and same thing is true like with every single relationship in all of our lives that we are becoming a part of. Um, and they are becoming a part of us, anybody that we interact with all the time. And that's just raised my, it's really heightened my sensitivity to who am I being and how am I showing up and just reminding me to respect that everything that's happening inside of me is going to affect everything that's happening with everybody around me and, and who I interact with. So that's, that's one of the big ones. And if I had to think of enough, I mean, I could, I could probably endlessly talk about things about the kids. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I, I coach one of my kids in sports and, and that's like a whole other universe of lessons. But um, I think one of the other big ones that comes up for me is, uh, for me, having kids, um, and my wife works, you know, I, I laugh about this. Like I go to work and then she is taking care of the kids. She works way harder than I do, like physically, emotionally, and mentally, um, to, to manage a six-year-old an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. Yeah. My opinion is that's way harder than what I actually do at work. And, um, and I look at what she does and what she deals with and having kids is very polarizing. Like there are moments where it, it, it generates more frustration than anything else could possibly generate for me. Yeah. Like my, my business could just fail. The whole thing could burn down. And there are things that my kids did yesterday that give me infinitely, what feels like infinitely more pain than if my whole business collapsed. Yet at the same time, there are moments of joy um, you know, within the last 10 hours that I've had with my kids that for me, give me a, a level of fulfillment and joy that is, uh, it's deeper than anything I get anywhere else. So, so that, uh, that balancing act between those is, um, it, it, it's a very sobering experience. I love that. 
I don't have kids, um, uh, nor am I married, but uh, I love self. That was just a beautiful way of, of bringing it full circle for me, at least just to hear that. Because I see, I mean, I look at you as somebody who's had a lot of business success, but um, just hearing the way you even talk about your kids right now, man, like it was, it was a very important reminder to just, it was the icing on the cake for presence and, and, and mindfulness and bringing it back to really what matters. Um, and so I have one last question for you, um, yeah, that, yeah. just to bring full circle, um, in the day to day of everything you're doing, everything you're accomplishing and where you're going, how do you stay grounded on a daily basis? Hmm. You know, that's a great question. Um, I, I think it's, it's not one thing. I think it's a combination of things. Um, you know, there's so many things that pull for my attention, that pull at my emotions, that pull at my uh, physical energy, that um, for me, I have like a combination of practices and philosophies that keep it all grounded. So one of them is um, I'm, I'm really kind of militant about um, taking care of myself physically through what I eat, through how I move my body, through not just what I'm doing to exercise in a formal way, but just how I'm managing myself physically at every moment. Um, because I, my experience has been, you know, we just had this whole conversation earlier about mindfulness. Like, yeah, now I know you're in the coffee business, so I got to be careful. How do I say this? But for some people, one too many cups of coffee yeah. is the dif- is the difference between, you know, whether or not you can actually be mindful or not. Yep. Right. And for some people that's a problem for some, it's not, but the point is, Um, I've learned that what, what I put into my body, there's no separation. There's no isolation between every single physical cell of our body and our mental, emotional, and intellectual experience and capability. So that's, that's a huge one for me is being really, really intentional. And I guess I would add to that, um, but spending a lot of time in nature and, one of the things I like about nature, like if you want to really oversimplify this, because I think there's more, nature has like a deep, infinite wisdom to it. Um, if you study systems and you, and you step yeah. back, you realize, wow, like the greatest business model on earth is the, the only model that's been around for 4 billion years. Like how did it sustain itself? And it's, it's, this is a very new science. It's emerging. It's only, it's a brand new, a lot of people won't even call it a science yet. But when you study what's called a complex adaptive system, you actually see that nature is governed by a set of principles. There might be 10 or 12 or 15 of them that if you look in a city uh, or an organization or a beehive uh, or a, uh, a kid's baseball team, any, any complex adaptive system, they're all governed by these same principles. So that's just my plug for realizing there's more going on when you're in nature than you might realize. But here's the simple answer. When I'm in nature, I'm as far away as I can possibly be from the things that when I'm not in nature are the ones that are pulling at my attention physically, intellectually, and emotionally. So it's like, it's the purest, like cleaning of the soul. I just need to get into the middle of the woods. And I don't, when I go run or walk in the woods, I don't bring music. I, I, I won't say never, but 99% of the time, I don't bring any digital device with me. Um, it, it defeats the whole thing. And I've gotten to the point recently where, um, now if you, 
your listeners are either going to become really intrigued or they're going to doubt everything I've set up until this point right now. <laughs> but I've gotten to the point recently where um, I, I'm actually, I have a relationship not only with the trees and the, and the places in nature that I regularly spend time in, which is, is a practice that goes back to indigenous traditions with when indigenous uh, natives would use nature as school for their children they would actually teach them to build relationships with nature itself. And they would also teach them to build relationships with animals. And in the last six months, it's not uncommon where I'm on a trail run and I'm meditating, um, on, uh, the, uh, I'm meditating in relation to deer and I'll, I will come around a turn and there will be a deer standing right there. And, um, and that's a beautiful experience. Like moments like that are the kinds of moments that, that make me think, Gosh, you cannot help but believe in something greater than ourselves. And whatever that means for everybody individually, you cannot help believe, believe in some sort of miracle. You cannot help but believe in some sort of spirit or consciousness of connectedness or whatever you want to call that uh, when you get really present in the middle of the woods. I love that. And I think that's a perfect wrap um, for this week's um episode of the stay grounded podcast we will have all of john's information on his page and in the intro um as well as anything going on in john's life that uh that you guys sh should be a part of um we will we will throw a lot of love his way but john i just want to take a moment man and say thank you so much for just being and showing up the way you you have over the last hour i mean i really i've really learned a lot from you just sitting here and having this conversation so just thank you Full of gratitude for you, my man. Raj, I appreciate it, buddy. It's been a pleasure. Good connecting with you, man. Absolutely. So, uh, okay, guys, that's a wrap. Uh, until next time, stay grounded. Thanks for joining us today on this episode of the Stay Grounded podcast brought to you by Java Press Coffee Company. My name is Raj, and I hope you found this interview helpful as you create your own ways to make daily happiness a priority. If you're interested in learning more about how your morning coffee can turn into a consistent source of joy in your life, visit www.javapress.com to learn how our products can help you do that and use the coupon code PODCAST for 10% off your purchase. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Stay grounded.